I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Recording. Dave Beldman. Or Dr. Beldman? No, you, no, no. no, no. Not. <laughs> I had a feeling as soon as I say that you would not be a fan. <laughs> no. But you are a professor I, at, at Redeemer? Yes. Yep. yep. Cool. That was, um, I think it was Holly... Is it Enter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Holly Enter. Yep. She she told me about you uh, a long time ago, and she was like, "You should, you got to go over for for coffee or something." Some point, this was even before the pandemic. You just got to meet this person, and I'm like, "All right, sounds good." And we didn't get around to it, even though we talked about a few things. You came to our premiere way back when, yeah. And then uh, here we are doing a podcast. I'm super thrilled. I'm super stoked about this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're a professor. Um, you also work on motorcycles, which is super cool, like really cool. Although you just, you said you sold one. Yes. Like, yeah. I, and, and it actually sounds a little bit more impressive than it actually is. <laughs> I, I feel like I know enough about motorcycles to be dangerous. Okay. So, um, I, I have worked on motorcycles. I have done some work, but really to do much meaningful stuff on a motorcycle, I've got to like call in some friends, which, right. which actually is a really cool part of just working on bikes. It's, it's one of the things I really like about the motorcycling Mm. culture is just the community is amazing. Like you have just really loyal people who will give you the shirt off their back. And yeah, I've, I've rarely seen that kind of like just humanness um, in people in the motorcycling world, which really sounds weird when I say it, say it out loud. Right. Yeah. Have you, this is a bit random, have you read uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? You know, I've I've tried a couple of times. Um, I, I know the premise and yeah. uh, I, I'd like, I, I like the idea of the book. It's, it's kind of like a philosophical, um, it, it's actually, I've heard the most popular f- work of philosophy um, yep. ever. Um, but uh, yeah, but telling, telling the story of philosophy and, and working through philosophical ideas using the context of like motorcycling yeah. and repairing motorcycles. Totally. I, I wasn't as much thrilled with it the second time I read it, mostly because the philosophy isn't actually that great. Yeah. But it's, but I really love the consistent motorcycle themes. I just really got a kick out of them. Yeah. Honest. And I learned more about motorcycles just from reading that book than I have really anything else. Yeah. If you haven't read uh, shop classes, Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford, I'd really recommend that he's, uh, he's kind of, he is actually a, a, he was an academic, um, weirdly, an electrician turned academic turned motorcycle uh, repair man. So it's a little <laughs> scary to me since I was an electrician before getting into the academic world. But um, just like kind of making a case for the trades in our day and age, just mm. in a day of like, yeah, the, the industries are, um, you know, office jobs and people not really understanding how to connect their work to the the bigger product and that sort of thing. And just making a case for like, just, just the, um, yeah, the, uh, just the, just the value, um, of, of the trades and working with your hands and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I firmly believe that every, uh, philosophy major should have a half semester working in framing. Mm. Cause I think like 
it because I, I I love I love academia. How good I am is another question, but mm-hmm. I, I love that world. But I've also worked in carpentry for a year, and you realize like many 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 people of this world could not care at all about like you know Kant and his categorical imperatives and all that stuff, right? It's so removed from so many people's lives, and that's relevant to think about, right? Like it's that that exists. That's true. Mm-hmm. You have to grapple with that. Yeah, and I mean, we were just talking uh, not too long ago about how. So I was an electrician for for six years, got my license and all that. Actually, in your neck of the woods for about three of those, um, doing electrical work in greenhouses and whatever. Uh, but there are definitely transferable skills that I learned in the electrical trade that I still use today. Like being an academic, like you're troubleshooting ideas, right? Um, and that's a that's a big thing about being an electrician. You have to be able to trouble troubleshoot problems that you're coming across and fix them. And yep. I, I see a lot of that sort of thing going on. And, um, and then just also like being a biblical scholar, like just being able to relate what I'm writing about and things I'm encountering in the biblical text with, you know, everyday life or, you know, trades or just, I can, I can relate, like I'm, I, I just like to think that I'm not the typical like nerdy <laughs> academic. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons why if, if I'm not, so you can ask yeah. my kids. Yeah. Which uh, we just had supper and they were great. Lo- <laughs> lovely family. Thank you. Um, yeah. Cause I know you I feel like we've all heard that really clunky sermon illustration. Like, so when you're a construction person and you're digging a <laughs> hole and every construction like worker is like, uh, sure or like yeah all right close enough right <laughs> right yeah cool so like l- let's go back there um yeah. what what brought you from i guess i guess what made you go into being an electrician and then what made you kind of journey your way from that to like did you have the goal of being a professor at mind early on or did you kind of discover that what was that what was that whole thing like for you yeah good great question um nobody in my childhood would have ever guessed that i would be a professor, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. In fact, if you had suggested it, uh, they just would have laughed you out of the room, seriously. Um, so, and, and part of that was actually a real struggle I had just with um, just with reading and understanding stuff um, as, a, as a kid. So school didn't come easy to me at all. Um, I struggled a lot uh, in grade school and in high school. Never really liked it, probably because I, I struggled um, like being around my friends and that sort of thing, but never really liked academic work, never really enjoyed reading. And so uh, I got married quite young. Let me back up a little bit how I got in the electrical trade, which was your question. Um, so once I was done high school, like I couldn't get out of there quickly enough, quickly enough. I was not going to school. Like there was no way I could have even gone to university, let alone probably college. My grades weren't great. Um, but anyways, um, so my mom was working with an electrical contractor and just like, it was like kind of like God's gift. Like people were looking for electrical apprenticeships and one just kind of landed in my lap. And honestly, I hated it for the first two years. <laughs> um, I was I was like 17 or 18. So what, what do 17 or 18 year olds really love? <laughs> um, not working. But anyways, I stuck with it and uh, started to enjoy it, but knew that this was not going to be like my career forever. And uh, once I got married, which was halfway into my uh, apprenticeship, then, yeah, I, I married an English major and a school teacher. And she had all these books on her bookshelf. And it really started with like, 
I was kind of embarrassed that I hadn't read all those books that everyone else had read. So I just started to, taking the books off her shelf that, you know, everyone's supposed to read, right? All the classics. And that sort of started my journey really into um, loving ideas, uh, loving to think about things and, and kind of couple that with an uneasiness about my future career as an electrician. Uh, we decided as a, as a couple that I was going to try going back to school, see how it went, how, how it goes. I wasn't even convinced I would be able to do the work, right. Just because of my, my past, but I was ready. Um, I, I knew that pretty, pretty, uh, soon into my career starting at Redeemer and then going on. But, uh, it wasn't long before I realized I like this stuff. Yeah. I was, a, I was, I was just ready. Like I was a sponge for kind of taking in all these ideas and then being able to kind of see big picture, how, how various ideas fit into one another in history and these sorts of things. So that, that sort of launched me onto a, a trajectory, which, you know, I was kind of thinking ministry at the time, uh, over the course of my undergraduate, I realized that my motivations and yeah, my, my kind of thoughts about like what the pastor is and why I wanted to be it. I, I, I feel like I was kind of exposing that stuff to me. And um, I, I, I became fairly convinced through three or four years at Redeemer that I probably shouldn't go into the pastorate. And so uh, I thought, what do I really love to do when I'm, you know, what courses do I really love? And it was really the biblical studies courses were really sort of digging in, you know, finding, you know, discovering these like literary patterns, theological patterns. Um, just, I was just absolutely fascinated. And I really got joy in writing my papers for those courses. So when it came to discerning, you know, where where is God calling me? I thought, well, I really do enjoy doing that. And I got some encouragement from some of my professors to go on and do a master's and that turned into a PhD. And here we are today. So that's long, rad. long story, but <laughs> that's super cool. I think that you can go from so maybe um, the experience of a lot of people, which is hating high school to enjoying writing papers, mm -hmm. you know, and because they're so different in so many ways, like I hated high school. Um, I was homeschooled. There's different dynamics. because there's things I did like about it, but on the whole, I just didn't enjoy school. Yeah. I enjoyed learning a lot though. And so wherever those intersected were pretty dope, but the actual like, like math, like Saxon math, like, God bless you, but you're the worst. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And it's funny cause I never connected this quite as, um, quite properly, but it was Jordan Peterson's like reading list mm -hmm. that really got me into academics at all because yeah. I started reading some of the classics and it was like, whoa, this stuff's so cool. It's so fascinating. And then, yeah, that was, I guess when I like allowed myself to put on the label of an academic barely, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting what you say just about the classics. Like I think, I think one of the first classics I read was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And, uh, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into and just like, the human experience on display. And I think that's what fascinated me the most about the classics and gave me a curiosity that, you know, um, people can write about the, the human experience. And so, I mean, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous story. Like this Dr. Frankenstein is creating a human being, but by, you know, this imaginary kind of ridiculous situation, 
drilling down deep into questions of what does it mean to be human? What responsibility do does you know creator and created have, um, or, or does a creator have to the created? And just like all these sorts of questions about science, and I was just like blown away. Yeah. And I, I just I just love that. Um, and then to think about like even the the Bible, uh, you know, it's curious. I think in our circles, just how we how we regard the Bible, right? So it's God's word, of course. I mean, given. But then what do we say beyond that? Like, and, and we see on display, actually, the, the human person, and actually not just the human person, but drilling down deep into those deep questions. So um, not just, you know, here, here's the sort of textbook answer, what it means to be human, but how do we plumb the depths of humanity? And, you know, a, a book like Job, which is just absolutely incredible if you read it. I, I feel like in our circles, we didn't really like Job because he's kind of like, nobody's that good, right? Like yeah. he's a sinner, which I mean, he admitted actually, but anyway, um, but just like, what is a human person? What is a human person before the face of God? How does God relate with people? And I mean, the Bible itself is an amazing text, even like if we were, which I don't want to, you sidestep the question of like, it's the word of God, even as a, you know, a, a collection of literature it is outstanding. Mm. It's astounding. Yeah. That's something that um, the Bible Project's really helping with mm. is you can and should see the Bible as a collection of beautiful literary text. And that doesn't diminish the reality that it's inspired God's word. And I think the more like a really fun way of seeing the divinity is to plumb so hard into the narrative beauty of it that like the deeper you go, you start seeing this weird sunshine at the bottom. It's like, oh, these are so much deeper than just stories. There's a God undergirding this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. which is, and obviously this is your world, right? You yeah, absolutely. One thing that's like probably a, um, probably a theme in my, my scholarship or just kind of a, a thread that runs through it is like the, the literary dimension of the text. So, um, so, so you need to hear all this stuff. Like, I'm assuming this is God's word, right? So, like that, that's not like a, a question at all. Like, it, it, it is God's word categorically. It's God's word. Like, that's what it is. But it's also written by humans. So, like, thinking through, like, how did a human write this text? Why, you know, why did he write he write it? How, how, what, what are the what are the characteristics of it? And what I found just absolutely so, so it's interesting. Now that's not enough, right? But I think actually paying attention to the literary dimension of these texts actually, um, I'm saying actually a lot, um, <laughs> gets us at the, helps us, it enhances our view of these texts as scripture, as God's word. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example. Just like, maybe this is a silly example, but if you think of like a chiastic structure, so that it's, it's like a structure that like, so if you think of a, a poem, it, it starts with a line and it ends with a similar line. And then the second line uh, kind of corresponds to the second last line and the third line to the third last line. And then there's something in the center, right? Now, you won't always be able to detect it. But when you, when you see that, you realize like, Okay, the, the poem is starting and ending in a certain way. So that's a kind of like framing, right? So uh, think of Psalm 8. Uh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It, it begins and ends that way. 
and uh, in the Hebrew, actually, it starts with a, a, a particle that it's, it's, um, it just indicates that it's a question. It's an interrogative particle. Um, so it starts there. It ends there. And then the question at the very center of the psalm, what is man that you're mindful of him, starts with that same particle. Now, we, don't, we won't know that if you don't know Hebrew. But uh, so you've got this very interesting um, literary stu- structure, but it actually clues us into what's going on in that psalm. So, you know, the, the glory and majesty of God, which is just so amazing and high above us and, and uh, uh, evident in creation, and yet the glory and majesty of God, uh, it gets the, the psalmist to be thinking about this question of human identity. What, what does it mean to be human? Like, why were we created a little lower than the angels? Like, in this whole vast world, in the majesty of God, it circles in. But the literary features actually get us at, like, something of the, the theological point of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think, I think it's one third of the Bible is written in poetry. Yeah, at least. Kind. Probably more. Yeah. And then, uh, that speaks, like, that's worth thinking about for about a month. Yeah. Why, why? Would God in his almighty wisdom decide to reveal so much of himself and character in poetic form? Mm-hmm. It's crazy because poetry, again, this is not a diss on, on theology in any way. Love theology. But poetry is not theology. Mm-hmm. Poetry is artistic language designed to convey more meaning than just words could, just descriptions can. Like it's more depth, more beauty. Like, I don't know. I find that so beautiful. Absolutely. I, I was just teaching on poetry and just thinking through, man, like I, you know, I have more of an analytic mind. So, you know, poetry is harder for me, but there is so much poetry in the Bible and poetry does something. It doesn't bypass the mind. So there, there will be people who say, oh, you know, uh, poetry is about the emotions and it like evokes the emotions and, you know, uh, prose is about the mind. It's, it's a false dichotomy. But anyway, so poetry, you engage your mind, but it is something about the heart and the emotions that it's evoking, right? So you read something like a beautiful psalm, Psalm uh, 32, which is um, uh, one of these beautiful psalms of confession, right? And the psalmist there is talking about how, like, in, in kind of like really over-the-top language, like when he's in his sin, like God's hand is heavy on him. He can't sleep. He's groaning. He's, he's you know, eating tears for his food all day long. And it's just like the worst. He's wasting away. Now, all those things aren't literal, but there's something about like, you know, an expression of like an, an over-the-top way that the poet is trying to say, look, don't do this. Like, hmm. learn from me. And yeah. then, you know, when, when he actually confesses to the Lord and then he becomes like an evangelist for what life is like when you are reconciled to God and you've confessed your sin and it is joy uh, unimaginable. And this is what poetry does. It does something more than just like, if, really, if, if we wanted to say what that psalm was teaching in a proposition, we could just say, you know, unconfessed sin is bad, confess your sin because that's good, right? Like it's joy, right? But the, the poetry does something different. Actually, this is this is interesting. I don't know. You, maybe you can say like if this is characteristic of our of our kind of circles, because I feel like I feel like the imagination is has been kind of like 
downplayed in our in our tradition. So um, may, maybe that's not fair. You can correct me if you want. But um, if if the if the imagination, like if we don't engage our imaginations when reading the Psalms or the or the prophets, the poetry, like what it's doing is it's shaping our imagination, giving us a vision of the world, and then saying like go out and live in this world, mm. right? Um, or respond in this world, right? Poetry is projecting a kind of world. And we should be asking ourselves, like, is this a world that like accords with our experience of it? Why or why not, right? People are disoriented by the Psalms of Lament, right? Where the, the psalmist is, is complaining. That's what a lament is. Like, God, where are you? How long? Like, that's pretty bold language, right? To, yeah. to be saying to God, how long? It means, God, you know, you're not on my time schedule. Like, get get to work. And these Psalms of the Men, I think we we find very um, disorienting. And if we're honest, we we think this isn't what a good Christian should be expressing. So what the Psalm Psalms of the Men do is they open up a world, a world where the where really the world is not as it should be. Hmm. Right? It's broken. And what I would say is. Why is it that we react against these things? And I, and I wonder if maybe, maybe there's a number of answers to that, but maybe one of them is we haven't experienced the deep brokenness of the world, right? The, the scriptures talk about the brokenness of the world. Hmm. And, and in fact, God went to the greatest lengths by giving his son to deal with that brokenness. So, so when we cry out to God against the brokenness of the world. We're, we're, we're crying with God's voice. Like he, he, we're, right. we're with God on that. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So we're talking about poetry. So what, what does poetry do? It's, just, it's, it's amazing when we open up our imaginations and enter into it, like how maybe, maybe our, our own conceptions of the world need to be reoriented by, by yeah. the poetry of the Bible. Yeah. I feel like there's obviously a ton to unpack in there. Mm. I, maybe you sort of teeing off a little bit of the end of what you said. If you're really preoccupied with a good Christian image, either as a person or as a church, obviously there's great things with that, but then you're going to really drive against that because like David was nothing if not honest and sometimes maybe theologically incorrect in his honesty. Mm. And that was part of the conversation that obviously would like flow through many of these Psalms. And I think that's in something, there's something in there that's super beautiful about like admitting like you can bring some theologically correct, incorrect emotions to God. That's a weird way of saying it, but like yep. question, like God takes questions that are just not right or questions that are, but then they are so right. You know, it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, so we're, we're dealing with scripture here, right? So Psalms, which are prayers to God, are also God's word and instruction to us. So that, that <laughs> yeah. becomes, if, if you actually just switch it over to Job, it's a little bit easier, right? right? Because there's a narrative and we could go back to Psalms if you want, but there's a narrative where Job doesn't say everything that's precise and theologically correct. And yet in the end, God affirms Job. Hmm. Now, now he's not actually affirming everything that Job says. I, I don't think that's what he's doing. But I, I think he's saying, like, w- when he says, you know, you haven't spoken rightly of me or, or to me might be better translation there. But, um, you know, Job was relentless in his pursuit of God. And, you know, yeah, he's not, he's not always precise. I, I was just thinking when you were talking about that, like, 
um, there, there was an incident recently where somebody had gone through like a really tough time and, um, and, uh, in, in the moment, like, like I took some lumps for it. Right. And, uh, it, it wasn't fair. Like what, what he was saying about what, what I had done was not, was not fair. But at the point it wasn't, it wasn't a time to be logical. Right. Mm-hmm. It would like, I, I didn't sit there defending myself because here he is like, uh, actually just like burying himself in, in a, like a pretty vulnerable way. And, you know, the right thing to do is listen and to pray and just to, to love on, on him in the moment and not to say, well, like, it's not precisely true. Like what you're saying, right. how I reacted there. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And that's what I you to go back to the Psalms. Like there, there are movements in the Psalms. So sometimes you, you actually get the Psalmist working through verbally an experience he went through. Mm. So, um, you know, when I was in the pit, uh, th- these are the sorts of things. He doesn't always like frame it that way, but that's what you get. But oftentimes you just get the re- resolution at the end. Yeah. Um, but but that's not to, not always. There's one psalm that doesn't get the resolution, which is Psalm 88, which the last the last um, the last lines are, "Darkness is my only friend." And I'm actually really, excuse me, <clears throat> I'm actually really glad that psalm is there. That it doesn't. Every other psalm of lament ends in praise, and there's one. So I'm I'm glad it's only one, but I am glad that there is one, yeah. right? Because it's not. I think what you were saying before is, uh, you know, we want to put on a, a kind of good face. Is that what you were you were getting at? Like we yeah, have something a, like that. An, an image, right? That we want to project, and uh, like I I think that's not. I mean, if you go through scripture, that's that's not the kind of, you know, we're not supposed to have it all together all the time um, on the surface. And and not only that is there will be people in our pews that don't have it all together. And if we can't, you know, like really, if we're not able to really express the brokenness of the world, like what do we say into the one who's like in a dark pit right mm. there? And all we can do is sing like happy praise songs just for the whole service. Mm. And we have no time to say, yes, but there's a deep brokenness. And I mean, today, look, we, we're in a, you know, 14, 15 months of a pandemic. We're all in the desert. Yeah. Um, so what are we, what are we going to do? Just like, there has to be a place of crying out to God. He yeah. hears. I mean, this is, this is what the, I mean, if we care about the Psalms, there are more Psalms of lament than any other. And what does God do? He hears, he, t- he, he sees our tears and he bottles them up, which is one of my favorite images from scripture. They're so precious to him that he bottles our tears. That's great. That's a really beautiful phrase. Yeah. I've never, where, do you know where that, that's from? Oh Which, man. Um, sounds like a Psalm. It, I believe. Yeah. I don't have it off the top of my gotcha. head. Yeah. Uh, Google, yeah. Google exists. Yeah. Just, you know, as we were sort of talking about lament here and I know one of the objections is like, well, you know, we have Jesus now and we're not in the old Testament and, um, Jesus himself used uh, a psalm of lament when he was on the cross, Psalm 22. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I, I want to flip. So I think some people think that if we complain, now it has to be framed pro- properly because there is a kind of bad complaining. Like mm. if somebody, like if I do a terrible uh, thing and I'm facing the consequences of it, I, I, the kind of lament I want is a psalm of uh, confession, which are a kind of lament. So it's a, it's like God. I'm, I'm a sinner, you know, forgive me. 
And if you can do something about this terrible situation I, I've got myself in, please do. But there are kinds of suffering that are not of our own doing. And, um, and some people think that we shouldn't, we shouldn't use laments or we shouldn't lament against God because like it's, it's, it's showing disbelief, but I, I want to flip that on its head. And I just want to ask, like, if you have like a really close, close friend, right? If, if, if you are so close with that friend, you can be, you can share with them the most and be the most vulnerable mm-hmm. that you can with any other person. And I think actually at a place of deep trust, you can go to God and say, look, I know you're in control. I know you're good, but this can't be your will, right? Um, and, and there's a place of, from a place of deep trust, you can uh, bring your complaint to God. I, I really do think, for the, for the sake of our witness, for the sake of our own, um, you know, Christian walk and, and where we're at and uh, sanctification, I think, um, and, and if we're truly feeling the brokenness of the world, and, and I think uh, as Christians, we ought to know something of the brokenness of the world and know just how amazing God's redemption is uh, because he overcomes that brokenness. But we, we are living in that tension between sort of the cross and Jesus' second coming, and mm. that's, that is a place of tension. Yeah. Brokenness. Yeah. It's so, like, it's so real. Like, I... I I bet most people have had experiences in their life even long since after becoming a Christian or being part, being part of a church for so long where they like places of despair and brokenness where they go, I, God, it's like, I really trust in you, but I'm also having a hard time believing you love me. And then there's a weird, like a, a, an allowance of doubt, a doubt through trust. Yeah. I'm, I'm not finding the right words for it, but. Yeah, no, that, that's it's actually just, it's so real, and it's something I've walked through with people. I've walked through myself, and like, and it's then it's so beautiful that the Psalms give voice to that. Yeah, and it's there in the New Testament as well. Just as you were talking, I was thinking one of my favorite sermons was on um, when Jesus comes to the the father of the demoniac um, boy, right? And so um, it, it's that story where. The disciples have tried to to drive out the demons, but they can't, they can't do it. Mm. And so Jesus comes along, and uh, so this is just kind of an interesting context in which this this comes up. But uh, this this is the the child who, you know, is the the demons would throw him into the water to try to drown him, or throw him into the fire to try to burn him. And uh, so um, Jesus, uh, his question, right? How long has it been this way? Right? So just think about that for a minute. The question that Jesus asks is, how long has it been this way? So you might just say, well, he's God. He would know that. But why, why would he ask that question to this man? Because he's saying, look, I, I see. I see what you're doing. I see. I, I know. And so it's 12 years. So I, I'm a dad. You know, I, I freak out when my, my kid gets a cold and I say, God, where are you? No, not really. But, yeah. you know, when, when your kid's suffering, you think, oh, like... Um, and, you know, just over a flu. Now imagine a father who over 12 years has, has just worried, you know, when he comes home from work or whatever, is his son going to be there? Just imagine that kind of weight. And then Jesus enters into that by just one question. How long has it been this, this way? So he says 12 years. So um, uh, Jesus says, do you, do you, I, don't, I can't remember. Does he say... 
anyways, um, uh, the the you you said that about um, faith faith and and unbelief. Like, mm. can can we as believers have a place of unbelief? So Jesus says, "Do you think I can do this?" He says, "I believe. Help my unbelief." Yeah. Now that yeah. that is fascinating. That that does you know that deserves some unpacking. I believe. Help my unbelief. So then we expect Jesus to say immediately, "Why do you not believe?" Like, haven't you heard the stories about what I can do? Don't you know I'm the king of the universe? Don't you know I've created all this stuff? You know, and so on and so forth. He doesn't rebuke him at all. That little bit of faith with all this unbelief, which is born out of years of just worry and anxiety and care for his son, um, that's enough. That that little bit of belief mm. is enough. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him about that unbelief. And then he shows him, look, Here's something to hold on to, right? Um, so I, I think there, you know, I, you you want to be careful, right? Like I don't want to encourage people not to believe, yeah. but but I think if we're truly in the world, and this is, I don't know what other people's experiences are, but I felt growing up, I was quite sheltered. Like there, there were no tragedies around me. No, nobody in my family got sick or died, or you know, um, so so I was quite sheltered. But I think if we're if we're truly in this world, and it may not be be in our family, it eventually will be. But uh, we're, we're going to experience the sorrows of the world. And what are we going to hold on to? There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of sorrow. Like, what what are we going to hold on to? I, I think we, we do hold on to Jesus, hmm. right? The one who was, was crucified for us, for this world, for the groaning of creation, and the one that was resurrected the first fruits of all creation so that that gives us something to look for the resurrection of our own bodies without any kind of like deficiencies or sickness or any you know mental illness or anything like that but uh, living in a renewed creation jesus death and resurrection secures that 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 gives us something to hold on but in the meantime i mean we i, th- I feel like we gotta we gotta feel that tension to fully understand the the glory of, of what Jesus did. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I don't know. I'm, I've sort of been, as you're talking, it's really hard for me to articulate this. So I'll try the best and you can see if we can tease this out. It almost feels like there's a kind of sin and brokenness that's cleaner to deal with. Like bad thing happened to you. You're sad. Cool. I mean, obviously not, but it's it's a li- it's it's pretty easy to work with. But then there's almost like a way more complex, harder thing when it's doubt and fear, and your identity as a Christian and like God, where are you? All those questions that get thrown into it, which can be and is so much more of the pain. Mm. That's that's. It's separate, but not separate from the actual problem. Does that even make sense? So, and I think that kind of struggles doesn't look as nice. You know, it's really easy to surround someone when they've got a big external problem. And now we're helping to work through the external problem. When that external problem then starts manifesting itself in really hard questions against God and Mm. resentment and bitterness, like bitterness to God straight up. Why? 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 Why are you doing this to me? Huh? Yeah. And maybe anger. But those don't those aren't those aren't as easy to deal with or as or as open to deal with. And I don't know if like this is not a critique on a church, it's just hard. But I think it'd be helpful 
to maybe meditate on this kind of stuff more so that we can have more open conversations about it. Like, I'm not saying it's okay for you to be angry at God, but there's some biblical precedent for people who were. Mm-hmm. And God loved them, and they loved God, and they worked through that. Does that, do you, do you vibe yeah, with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just sparking a lot of uh, thoughts, really. Um, the one is that I know this isn't across the board, so maybe I should just speak for myself, but I feel a little bit like in our communities, we're pretty closed off from like, I mean, y- you deal with addicts and I mean, we're, we're sitting in the basement of a church here that is a pretty, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty depressed area of, of Brantford and you're going to see people that like are just deeply broken, right? Yes. Um, so I think one thing is like, we're generally in our, our circle, especially if we were raised in this, like it, our families aren't perfect, but we kind of have a sense of what it, like a, a stable family looks yep. like. So we, we've got a lot like going for us. Um, not again, not everyone. I don't want to kind of paint too broad of strokes, but I think once you realize, like get out in the world, you realize there are some like serious and not like easily fixable and maybe not even like totally fixable on this side of eternity issues that people have. And what are we, what are we going to do? Because I think we're used to like pre like just normal ways of being. And so like we get somebody who's, you know, on the wagon now and pretty soon off the wagon, like how, like that, that just gets messy, mm. right? Um, our church services can't be, you know, the, the pristine, you know, the order. We always talk about the order. It has to be orderly, right? Well, when you start, <laughs> when you start, um, when you start having like the community come into your church because you're in the neighborhood and you're, you're loving people, then things get a little disorderly, whether you, whether you like it or not. So how are we going to deal with that? Are we going to be okay with that? I think this is straying a little bit from your question yes. about like... It's a conversation. It goes there. Yeah, yeah. But, so, uh, yeah, I totally vibe with what you're saying though. Yeah, so the other thing that sparked with me with what you said is that um, we, we've got to do community better. I, I think there are certain things that we are okay at with community. Like, you know, when somebody has a baby, like we're getting meals out to them. And, you know, when somebody's like sick, I, I think we are like pretty good at, at taking care of them. But I think mostly we can just live without each other. Hmm. Like what, what kind of community are we if we can just live without each other, right? Like if we could go just like weeks. Now we're learning something about this maybe through the pandemic, but um, I, I think we've got to do community a lot better. Like it's it's... Are, are we really the body of Christ? Are we really family? And what does that look like? And I think it means that not in the same way that, you know, I just talked about, like we, if we truly trust God and, and we have our faith in him, mm. you know, we could be very honest with him. Like we have to have communities where we are like brutally honest with one another because we can just keep those facades up then and, yeah. and never really, you know. It, so it's, it's funny, like, like you're talking about your that friend or that situation where you were maybe slightly wrongly accused wrong place wrong time to talk about that so i I was talking to some of my friends about christian friendship and the i'm convinced we can't have that the world broadly can't have friendships like christians can have only because there's such a deep understanding with my friends and me that how messed up we are and how sinful we are mostly because we've practiced the some degree of confession. Like I know your sin, dude, and you know mine because we've told each other. So, and I can go to them in a tough time, like hard things and be like, I just don't freaking know why God's letting this happen or whatever it is. 
and they're not like trying to theologically correct me at that time, but they're just like, yeah, it's hard. I'm, I'm here, man. And we like, it's almost like you, you would expect us to say that kind of thing, but the precursor to that needs to be a level level of like vulnerability and honesty that like, I'm not saying this. I'm perfect clearly by any stretch of this, but being like freaking honest with each other about sin leads you to be honest with each other about how you're experiencing things, which leads you to be honest with each other about your like reflections on God and then critiquing each other to build yourselves to a better understanding of God. And it all like kind of kaleidoscopes together mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. in the Christian life. Yeah. I hope that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think it did. I mean, just in this pandemic, like maybe I, I don't know what's happening at other churches. I know in our church, like things are shifting. Like I think we've been on this trajectory a little bit, like, to, to becoming a little bit more vulnerable, but, uh, but man, we're not gonna, and it's not like trying to help each other really either. Like, like what you mm. said, like, it's, it's not trying to solve things, but if we can't just say like, dude, I'm not okay. Like right now, I'm just not okay. And like, what, what are we going to be, you know, then we, then we're always just going to have these masks on and it, it's going to be like, it's, it's still the Christian life, right? But it's going to be a diminished life, I think. Uh, the the kind of like you think about the communities that you see in the New Testament, right? Like you have to like they didn't have the luxury of not like leaning on each other, <laughs> right? They were they were surviving. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. We we got to get a we got. I I, th- I think really it's it's through these this desert that we're in right now that uh, maybe we're starting to wake up to to that sort of yeah. thing. How important the community is. Totally. Yeah. You don't know what you got until you lose it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I did not expect us to go in uh, this direction <laughs> for the first forty minutes. Yeah. But it's it's really good. This is important important stuff because I've I feel like I've probably been a bit of a broken record. That's the that's the term. A broken record for like friendship for mm. the past few podcasts maybe maybe to a point that's annoying sometimes for people to listen to it almost sounds like bragging but it's in a weird kind of bragging because of how much i love my peers because of how much they've meant to me and just helping me right like i could list a whole list of names and some of them have been on this podcast the people that's like i've gone to them like crying about shit and they've been so like such good friends back and then it happens vice versa and that's just been a huge element of like it it's it just means so much but then it goes into weird areas where you wouldn't think like when we're discussing theological controversial questions there's an undergirding of humility because we all know each other's crap Mm -hmm. and honesty as in actually trust you that you're genuinely disagreeing with me about an idea not hating on me as a person right yeah and like that character that character matters to the intellectual side of things where you're discussing theological arguments you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i yeah i i don't know exactly what that relationship is between like integrity and intellectualism i don't know i'm sort of i'm sort of it's a it's a fuzzy idea that i've sort of been trying to codify i don't know if you have any thoughts on that It's it's a bit odd yeah just just reformulate the question (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I can. Um, it's kind of a question about unity, actually. Yeah, yeah, okay. In yeah. some weird way. And we we talked a little yeah. bit about this. Yeah. I I guess the big question is, and masks have masks, lockdown, all these fun topics mm-hmm. have been a really 
testing and breaking point in our church is on unity in a lot of ways. And I've found that I don't have these breaking points with my closest friends yeah. at all. Yeah. Mostly because we've got, and this is obviously isn't everyone because you can't have this, but with my closest friends, we've had this foundation of, we've both worked through pornography together. Like, yeah, I know your, I know your sin, you know mine. You, you, we've like been when each other are broken. And so when it comes to controversial ideas, there's trust and integrity kind of built in there. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a relationship between, I don't know, between like kind of theological disagreements and like confession of sin and, um, and like trusting one another and truth and all these kind of more virtuous side of things. Mm, mm. I literally have not yeah, thought yeah, this before yeah. up until now yeah. r- very properly. Yeah. So I don't even know if you have anything. I'm very much grasping at straws, but there's something interesting there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, I think the real, the really important thing is, you know, what you're talking about there is, is a community, right? Like a, a unity in purpose. And yeah, I think, I do think trials and vulnerability and all of those things cement you to one another, right? So, mm. and, and and I think when you have faith, then of course, that that is sort of the core of the thing that cements you together. But all these other experiences are kind of like um, reinforcing that in in ways that like become almost like unbreakable, right? Like, you, I still remember I had a friend who, like, really, really, like, really badly messed up his marriage, and. Uh, and he didn't want to, um, for, for months, he, he, we, we, it was at a crossroads of like where we were going, like just generally in life, but like at the point where we were ready to go off in different, uh, area, like different, uh, directions for, you know, just th- th- that's the way life went. He was going this way and I was going that way. Not, not bad. Um, this stuff came to light and we were really close friends and he wouldn't, he wouldn't take my calls. He wouldn't. And finally, after like maybe six months, I don't know what it was. And like, we were seeing each other almost every day or every other day. And, uh, so finally we, we hashed it out. I didn't even know all this stuff. And so he, he told me about it. I thought like, dude, like we are brothers. Like mm. I, like what you did was despicable and like, like yeah, just despicable, but like we're, like, wh- what did you think? Like, I just walk away from you? Right. Like, no. I, so, I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm going to say it's okay what you did. And, um, but so anyway, um, so all that stuff kind of cements you together. So I, I do think like, then I think, you know, you, you kind of know where each other stand, right? Like, you're not going to compromise on Christ. You're not going to compromise on Scripture, and you know all the all the like absolutely essential things. You, you know that yeah. you, you're not going to shift on those things, and then it becomes fun. Then you can really dig into, you know, the really tough questions because you know that you won't compromise on what's essential, and then you can really like. I, I think actually what happens there then is a sharpening, right? When you yeah. disagree with one another. There's something about like formulating ideas and not just reading about them, but talking about them. And then like 
this happened to me in my undergraduate. Like there were four or five of us who were commuters and like mature students who were married and we would hang out in the cafeteria and just like everything we were learning, we would be hashing out around the cafeteria table. And like, I feel like I probably learned as much around that table as I did like reading the books and writing the papers. So yeah, so I, I think it just allows you to be on a solid ground and then like allow this stuff to, to come out and that you, you can sharpen one another. Hmm. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Did you guys, uh, <laughs> did you guys talk about judges? <laughs> do you want to talk about judges? I do. Well, I, so this is, like, this is actually genuine, hundred yeah. percent genuine question. Yeah. Why judges? How'd you get there? Yeah. I mean, okay. give the context for why that. Yeah. Yeah. Sense, so, right? so, uh, Jake and I were talking before, but, um, so I did my doctoral research, my PhD dissertation on the book of judges. So the last five chapters, which is actually in the book of judges, like the, the worst kind of despicable behavior, um, which like really like they almost should have like a warning <laughs> before you read these chapters um, because it's, it's pretty, pretty significant stuff um, and, and troubling, I should say troubling. So how do these last five chapters, uh, which end the book, like w how do they end the book? Like what kind of ending is this? Like what is it doing? So that gets you into questions of what's going on in the book. Anyway, um, how did I get there? Well, if you're getting into a PhD program, you have to, you know, do an application. And with the application, you have to put in a proposal for what you want to work on. And I had something completely different. But anyway, I you got to figure out what you're going to study for three, four, five years, right? Um, what I wanted to do was uh, do some research on endings in Old, in Old Testament literature because you just had some very interesting ending of, of biblical books. And you, you're probably thinking some right now. I'm thinking I see Jonah. Yeah, yeah. So Jonah ends in a question. I think it's the only book that um, ends in a question. It ends with the word cows. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just so interesting, right? So should I not be merciful to, you know, how, how many is it? hundred, whatever yeah. it is. I can't remember. Um, all these Ninevites. Uh, sh should I not be um, uh, merciful to them and all their cows? Now, the book it, ends. It's great. It's it's great. But but think about that as an ending. What is that ending doing? Like you got to think about somebody is sitting writing down the book of Jonah, hmm. right? And he could end it like the the person writing down Jonah could end it in any kind of way he wanted, right? And he probably knew what happened to Jonah, so he could have brought some resolution. And yet the author of Jonah decided to end by, you know, by the divine inspiration of the, of the Spirit with a question, should I not be merciful? Now, how does that, what does that do to us? It makes us think, I wonder how Jonah answered that question. Mm. Did, like, did he answer, yes, you should be merciful? Up until that point, I think he would have answered, no, you shouldn't be merciful. They're terrible. Your, your love is, is okay for us, <laughs> God's people, your mercy and your slow to anger abounding in uh, steadfast love and, and mercy. That's all good for us, but not for our enemies. Don't extend that to our enemies, right? So no, you should not have mercy. That's, that's, how, um, that's how he would have answered it. But we don't know. Like, did the experience of Jonah transform Jonah? It also, you know, hangs in the air for us, right? Now, we don't have the Ninevites, but... You know, maybe we have, like, like who who are the Ninevites of our day, right? right. Uh, maybe it's those. Uh, you know, um, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to be controversial here, but not too controversial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
maybe it's the people who insist on us wearing masks, or maybe it's the government who's, um, you know, uh, restricting our, our, our worship, or maybe it's the radical feminist, or maybe it's the radical Islamist, right? Should God not have mercy on those? Mm-hmm. And, and how are we going to answer? I love, and again, this is, I'm going to throw this back at the Bible Project, because their teachings were the first time I really thought through like exactly what you said, like the author of that book intended it to finish in a way to make you ask questions of yourself and of the book and of that. And that's the point. Yeah. It doesn't just be like, it's not just conveying a truth. So you know the truth it's conveying a question or an unresolved for the purposes to get you thinking. And he knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is so cool. And I think things like there's stories like Cain and Abel that do that. Mm -hmm. Really deep, deep archetypal stories that aren't just like you don't get a a parabolistic easy ending. You've got to like sit down with a cup of coffee and hopefully a few good friends and a couple Bible translations and just talk about that for a long, long time. And maybe, and tell me if I'm if I'm right here, maybe the point is you don't get exactly the right answers or, or one answer. There's not one answer to the Cain and Abel story. There's a whole lot of things for you to muse and think and chew through. And that's the point. Yeah. You know? Does yeah, that, does well, that yeah, make sense? Yeah. I mean, we'd have to take each each text on its own, but right. like certainly, yeah, I, I think your, your conversation with Fred, um, I don't know how long ago I did listen to it, but... Um, uh, about speech act theory. So what are these texts? I don't want to get into that. And probably your, your listeners don't either, but, but what are these texts trying? It's another to, nerd. Oh, yeah, no. exactly. What, what are these texts trying to do? So what, what is Jonah doing when it ends with a question? I mean, it's just very, very interesting, right? Anyway, so this was a question about how I got into judges. So, um, just very interesting endings of books. So, um, you know, I, I could list off more. Amos is a very interesting one because it's like 11 chapters. Yeah, 11 chapters of just like dire judgment. It's like wave after wave. And it's just so depressing. And then you've got like five or six verses. And, you know, after I pluck you up, I'm going to plant you. And I'm going to sort of restore you. And this great blessing that's coming. So, you know, get judgment, 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 judgment. And then you have hope, right? So it's interesting, right? Now scholars do stuff with this, right? Like they they think like the the ending of judges doesn't really fit on all sorts of levels, and so um, you know I want to ask this question like, what is this ending? How does it work? I was actually going to use um, a bunch of different uh, case studies, so judges was going to be one of them, and it's the first one I worked on, right? Um, and then I realized like okay, I got a whole dissertation here on judges. So I, it wasn't like, oh man, like I really want to figure out judges. It was just kind of like almost like not exactly accident because we don't believe in accidents, but that sort of thing. Like I just kind of stumbled mm. in this. It was going to be one of a few different case studies of Old Testament endings and it just kind of took on a life of its own. Yeah. Nice. Um, <laughs> did you, like it's, it's kind of awful to tell an academic to, take his entire work and sum it down to a few points. Yeah. Because the whole point is that you don't do that and you actually like write your dissertation, really think it through. But is there any like, I guess what, what from your studies, what have you pulled that should make someone go and re-examine judges? Like, or 
do you, do you kind of know what i'm saying like yeah what yeah. what should i what should i re be thinking about when i go read judges next time yeah i think the kind of question you're asking is like what what's the point of reading judges like how, how like if there's a, a message there that we need to hear what what kind of message yeah. is that um so i i did my dissertation i actually wrote a commentary as well so um I, can people buy that yep yep cool. so Sweet. uh it's it's erdman's so just get out and get some <laughs> buy it for your pastor <laughs> um so the one thing, yeah, so I, I actually think it's a very powerful, the, the message of Judges is a very powerful message. Uh, unfortunately, it's cast in the negative, right? So, um, and and really, as a good piece of rhetoric, it's more than that. You know, negative examples are helpful, right? Like, this, this is the kind of way you should go. But if you don't, like, look what what is possible <laughs> lurking down the road if uh and and for judges it's like if if you abandon Yahweh the god of the old testament um you know he he's your king right he's the king of the cosmos but if we learned anything from Exodus and him getting you out of Egypt is he's not only the king of the cosmos he showed that through the plagues but he's your king so mm-hmm. he he gets them out of Egypt he brings them to himself he gives them a new identity. You're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then he gives them the law, which is now this is how you are to live as a, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, let, let me just say a little bit about the, I, I was supposed to do this shortly in a short way, but anyway. Dude, it's a podcast. Yeah, okay. It's great. We can so, do it as long um, as we want. The kingdom of priests and holy nation is a very, very interesting pair of descriptors for what they're supposed to be. So, you know, as a kingdom of priests... They're supposed to be, um, sorry, as, as a holy nation, they're supposed to be set apart from the nations, right? So they they shouldn't be like the nation. If there's one thing that they shouldn't be is they shouldn't be like the nations. So they're a holy nation, but they're a kingdom of priests. And what does a priest do? Well, they they learn in the, the instructions what a, what a priest does. And essentially, one of the first things Aaron and his sons get is the, the priestly blessing, right? The Aaronic, not ironic, but Aaronic blessing. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a blessing, and it's a blessing for peace. And so what does the, 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 um, the priest do? Yes, he, he mediates, right? So he takes the sacrifices of the people, takes the prayers of the people, bring them to God. But more, not more importantly, but equally as importantly, is they mediate the blessing of God to the people, right? They pronounce the blessing and so on. So now Israel is supposed to be holy, set apart from the nations, but they're also called, and this is time and time again, to be a blessing to the nations, to mediate a channel blessing of, of Yahweh's blessings to the nations. How do they do this? Well, in complete allegiance to King Yahweh, right? And so, you know, by the time we get to the end of Joshua, all the promises that God made, and Joshua makes a point of this, you know, all the promises God made to you uh, have been fulfilled, not one of them. Look at Joshua 24, the language there, 23 and 24. Um, Not one of them has passed away. All have come to pass. And what does he do? He's like, you know, who are you going to serve? He's asking, like, where is your allegiance? Who are you going to serve? So he says, they say, oh, we're going to serve Yahweh. 
And then he says, oh, you can't do it. And they say, no, we're going to serve Yahweh. And then one more time they say, we're going to serve Yahweh. So this language of allegiance to King Yahweh is there. All the promises are fulfilled. They're in the land and they're, they're pledging their allegiance three times. We will serve Yahweh. We will serve Yahweh. We will serve Yahweh. We turn the page over into Judges. And what we expect is like, wow, like we've got a people with all the promises in place, absolutely committed to serving Yahweh. Like this is going to be amazing. Like the nations are going to look in and say like, what's going on here? It's just abundance. The justice reigns, the the vulnerable are taken care of. It's just abundance and, you know, life in abundance. And they're going to want to get in in on the action and they're going to join and and the blessings are going to overflow into the nation. That's what we expect. (laughs) Um, But then we read about uh, Joshua 2 or Judges 2 verse 10 another generation arising after Joshua and all the elders and all the people who had seen God's great acts on behalf of of Israel and another generation rises up who doesn't know Yahweh and all that he had done for Israel. And what do they do? They forsake. So think about the kingly allegiance like language. So they, in a sense, like desert. This is the title of one of my books, Deserting the King. So they desert King Yahweh. And what do they do? So they forsake Yahweh and they serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all the the gods. So this is a, a switching of allegiance. Now, I'm getting to why this is important. So they've switched allegiance. So in allegiance to Yahweh, they would live out their priestly kingdom, holy nation uh, vocation, and the nations would be blessed, right? It would be great. Um, they, uh, they, they reject Yahweh. They pledge allegiance to the gods of the nations. What kind of, uh, nation and society do we expect to emerge under the allegiance of the Canaanites, Canaanite gods? Well, a thoroughly Canaanite society. And that's what we see unfolding in, it it really struck me, um, when I was studying judges is that, you know, when God commands the people uh, don't worship any other gods before me. Now, it does say like he's a jealous God in that, but do you think God, like the, the God of the universe is worried, like like you think he's a petty God, like like in the high school, oh, like they, they like him, like, like these gods over here more than me. That's not really what God is getting at. He's saying like, it, it's actually, you know, when you worship other gods, you will become like those gods, or you will become like the people who pledge allegiance. So what he's calling them at Sinai to do is pledge allegiance to him and then build a society that reflects his values and and what he cares about, right? And so uh, one of the reasons why God uh, tells them not to worship other gods, because he knows that once they, they pledge allegiance to the foreign gods, they will build a, a thoroughly Canaanite culture and society, which is no good for the people of Israel and certainly no good for the nations that they're called to bless. So, you know, why why is this important? Why do we need to see this? Well, I I think it does kind of show, yeah, like sin is bad and we should, but it actually tells us something about like our own calling in the world. We are, we have this very same calling as Israel. Peter talks about that in his letter. We're called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, we're not like a a political entity like Israel was, but our our identity um, as the people of God, not as a nation, and then our calling is the same, right? To to be a blessing to the nation, to be a kingdom of priests, holy nation. Um, And so when 
and and this is the thing israel when they moved into canaan the most natural thing if you're you know in that worldview is to figure out who the local gods are not so that you can reject you know your gods but just to sort of like you you find out who the local deity is because you know that's good for crops and and fruit fertility and things like that um, so it'd be in, in a sense, the most natural thing to do, but, you know, according to God and his, his view of the world, this is counter what, what he desires. So anyways, um, I, I think it's hard for us to see the idols that are captivating us in the world. I think we are not unlike Israel in that way. We are captivated by the gods of the nations, even while confessing like the Israelites did that Yahweh is our king and we're going to serve him. And yet we serve the idols of our day. And I think what judges should be doing to us is warning us that this isn't just like, you know, when we, when we follow after the gods of, of our culture, it starts to get in into us in ways that we don't expect. And, and we start to build a culture. Even in our churches, I think, we, we build a kind of culture that reflects the values of the gods of our day rather than the values. You know, during this pandemic, we ought to be... Now, I, I, I'm not saying I know how we ought to respond to this. But one thing I do know is that we ought to be havens of rest. They, the, the, the rest of the world should be looking at us and saying... How is it that this community, which really isn't that much different than the rest of our city, how is it that they are finding a way to be absolutely committed to one another? And, you know, they're not splintering like everyone else in in society. Now, I'm not saying we should all think the same way about the pandemic. No. But our bond of in Christ Jesus, our union with Christ and each other should change the way that we it just should should transform everything, including the way that we respond to this pandemic, so that people look in and say, man, that's really, the way that they are navigating is really good for them, and we want to get in on that because the, what the society is doing, like, but if, if, we're, if we're bowing and, you know, burning the incense to the, the idols of our culture, we're just going to look like the culture, and we're going to be as self-destructive mm. as the culture. So I think there's a lot of... Uh, um, there's some just general teaching, like the basic message about the book, which, uh, you know, just to, I think it requires a little bit more uh, explanation, but the no king in Israel refrain at the end of the book, I think primarily is talking about Yahweh's kingship. I think it has implications for human kingship as well, hmm. but it really is like, and, and actually Samuel will, will talk, it'll talk about this in Samuel, right? So Samuel's bent out of shape when they want to have a king. And God says, like, you know, don't get bent out of shape. I'm the one who should be bent out of shape because they haven't rejected you as king. They've rejected me as king, and they've done so ever since they've left Egypt. And throughout the whole settlement period when they're in Judges, they've rejected me as king. And I think that's what the basic message of Judges is. is like, look, the, this is what you can expect will happen if you reject Yahweh as king and you like sort of enthrone the gods of the nations, you will become thoroughly Canaanized. And, and that, that will actually explain a lot of the anomalies in the book. Like at the very end of the book, when it just seems really weird that these, um, uh, the men of Gibeah in chapter uh, 19, who do this terrible atrocity, that uh, the rest of their tribe would, would rally around them and try to defend them. Right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why didn't they just give them up to the rest of uh, uh, t- to the rest of of Israel and allow justice to take place? Well, 
in the ancient Near East, so in the surrounding cultures, there's no like universal morality. It's tribal. So what is, you know, the measure of what is good or evil is what's good or, or bad for my tribe. Mm. So actually, if you're a Canaanite, the most natural thing to do would be to rally around your men, no matter what they did, because it's not good for one of your tribe to like, however many men to to be uh, executed or, you know, justice come on them. So you rally. So it's a it's the most natural thing to do. Um, so anyway, yeah, the um, basic message, rejection of Yahweh, this is what happens. And I, I think there are powerful lessons for us today, like how are we responding in our own culture? How much of our own culture is, is influencing us more than a countercultural, like lives devoted to Jesus Christ? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's so good. It's, um, just reminds me like how much you can't do like popcorn verses. You know, like your favorite ver- favorite verse in the Bible yeah. is perfectly fine. But it's like if you really want to get a lot out of Judges, you really got to slog through what God did in Exodus and called his people to yep. in Exodus to really tee up the gravity of what comes, to what, three, four, five books later, yeah. whatever whatever yeah. it is. I guess it would be five books later. Um, and that historical understanding is so important like even even internal to the book mm-hmm. like you don't even have to get like i love th- everyone loves throwing around the near eastern phrase right this is a good <laughs> phrase to say it's, it's like you want to know how i'm smart well near eastern context <laughs> but and it's which is super important right yeah. but even just internal to the book you can get a whole sense of where this is going that's right and yeah so th- there is enough there and that that's i mean it, it's not unrelated to some of the things we've talked about in the recording but elsewhere as well just like, um, you know, what good is scholarship, right? Like, I, I feel like sometimes I get like this anti-intellectual vibe. And I just want to say as well in that regard, like, I had people saying, oh, Dave, like, because I was, I was kind of thinking ministry and I, I, I felt like God was nudging me off that path. But I had people saying like, oh, like, you know, how many people have lost their faith because they like you know, study too much or, you know, study the Bible, mm. like as an, as like a, an object or whatever. And I, I, I just want to say to them, because this was my experience, like, has it ever occurred to you that maybe your faith could be deepened by like rigorously uh, uh, studying the Bible, like really digging deep, right? Now, th- some of the questions that I have to deal with as a Bible scholar, like most of you don't have to. And, you know, I'm kind of grateful that you don't have to, right? Like that's just part of like, it's, it's like a, you know, in any job, like there are really fun things to do. There, there are less fun things to do, but you know, I have to grapple with questions that most people won't have to. And, you know, oftentimes they don't understand why I have to grapple with it, but it's just part of my job. And, you know, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't, but, um, but, you know, has it ever occurred to you that maybe like my faith could be deepened by studying the depths of God's scriptures, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, that that was that is the case for me. I, I think as I, you know, the more I get to study, like a book like Judges, who could study the, a book like Judges for four, five, six years and still be like so grateful that you did and think like, wow, we need this. Like right. the church needs this, yeah. right? Um, so I, I can't remember where the question was started off, but uh, yeah, the the uh, so we can't just like. 
Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many, this is for another podcast, I think, but, um, there, there are so many like not helpful ways of reading the Bible. I want to be careful here because like, it's amazing what the spirit can do. Mm. Right. And I, I also don't want people to think that in order to understand the Bible, you have to be a scholar. I don't believe that at all. And so like what you're saying, like you can get a lot, um, well, you can get whatever you need from from Judges itself, but just realize as well, like you're reading a, an English translation, which a lot of scholarly work has gone into producing mm-hmm. that uh, that English translation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've had the privilege of, of being able to dig down deep and see what's in the culture surrounding it and how there are resonances that, you know, most people won't even be able to see. So, you know, I, I get to see some just interesting just layers to it. And and that's the interesting th- that's the, the amazing thing about scripture is like you can't plumb the depths. 100%. Yeah. And then I get I get to be in a, a fun position. I'm not I'm not saying you aren't, but I'm half in the academic world, half outside of it. Yep. Right? Like I got a couple years of Greek under my belt. I'm also terrible at Greek. So and I I totally resonate with what you're saying about like the depths of study, not just the Bible, but the context around the Bible mm-hmm. and languages, which is and isn't the Bible, like, and why it's like, man, stuff with like learning Greek and then learning like ancient Greek culture and how that interacts and doesn't interact with the Bible. And there's so much just weird, interesting stuff in there that's grown my appreciation of, of the New Testament authors so much. Yeah, And I think a lot of the fear um, comes out of just not understanding it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people, people, I think people are, no one put it this way. People are terrified of mechanics. What do you do? What wizardry do you do? Like yeah. my car doesn't work. You, you somehow know that that's the serpentine belt. How do you, what? You know, like you were always ter- a little bit terrified of what we don't know. And I think that's a big thing when it comes to academia is it's a really hard conversation. Like, and I think we're trying to do this a little bit and Fred and I tried to do it a little bit mm-hmm. with who knows how much success, like, trying to take something like speech act theory which is a common terminology for for that those circles mm-hmm. and break it down for people who just don't like it's not a value judgment it's just you might have better things to do with your time than to learn about speech act theory yeah but it's not a scary thing it's just a different world but it's the same bible yeah yeah and that's tricky right because i i think part of the reason <clears throat> why people fear their mechanics is because you think they might be tinkering st- with stuff under the hood that, and, and actually, you know, because you don't trust them, right? Mm. If you trust your mechanic, it's not a big deal, right? Like then, you, you know, you, you send it to them, you take the bill, you enjoy the car. Right. Um, so, uh, th- and, and actually there, there is stuff in scholarship that we shouldn't trust, right? Um, and there, there are theories that aren't helpful and there are theories that are damaging to the Bible, right? Um, so let's let's acknowledge those. Um, but I, I think there's a kind of like painting, like everyone who goes in accept all these theories or whatever. Um, but you know, yeah, as a as a scholar, I guess I have to grapple with some of these things and actually, yeah, really, um, yeah, Re- really take seriously the claims, right? Like that's what I have to do as a scholar, right? So if there's a theory I don't agree with, I got to take seriously the claims and actually deal with the actual Mm. um, evidence that is being put forth. So if there are inconsistencies in the Pentateuch, like 
you might have to acknowledge that there are some inconsistency. What are you going to do with those now? So yeah. there might be one theory for dealing with it, but there might be others, right? So with with judges, like the the last five chapters, it's it's bizarre. It there are no more judges anymore. There's a new refrain that talks about like kings, and it seems like in other places in the book, it's has a different view of kingship, and so like it's it's an unexpected ending, right? So what are you going to do with that? Just acknowledge it's an unexpected. And, and there seem to be different views of kingship going on. So that's fine. I, I can deal with that. So now, like, let's look at the theories. So look at the theories. Are there other ways of explaining the theories? Because a lot of scholars would just say, well, you know, those chapters were added later, which I don't know how we would know that that's the case. Maybe it is. Maybe it, I, I just don't know. But we've got this book. We have no manuscripts that don't have the ending on it. So are there better ways to make sense of the ending? So anyway, so th- that's the kind of process right. that sometimes I have to go through through. And, you know, some people think, well, that's a waste of five years that you spent like studying this and writing up a dissertation on it. But um, like, I think I, to someone who would say that, just be so grateful you can read your Bible in English. Yeah. And yeah. then don't scoff at scholars who dedicate their lives to things that are because I'm also with you. Sometimes I look at some scholarly pursuits and I'm like why yeah like i because i'm not i'm not dissing you yeah but there's other ones where i'm like really is that a good use of your time and then i'm like but also i gotta have really nice clean greek textbooks due to people who spent like inordinate amount of time trying to understand the participle so i'll just be grateful and move on right yeah yeah and i i just wonder if there's like a worldview aspect to that too because like i'm sure there are just like many vocations where we might just say like why on earth would anyone like do that right like what good is it? And then you think like, well, because God gifted them. Like I, yeah. I, one of my mentors is like a linguistic genius. And like he does this like detailed stuff. That's not my shtick. Like I'm not, I'm not, that's not my gifting, but it's his gifting. And to see him do it is like incredible. And sometimes like the payoff is like, okay, now we understand this word like slightly better. Or we, or even like, you know, we can be like this much more certain that it might mean this <laughs> rather than that. Right. And then, uh, but he's good at that. And like, uh, you know, I just want to be like, I, I personally feel like I, I really enjoy taking. So I wrote a dissertation, which like very few people are going to read only other scholars. Um, but I really like taking that stuff and then like making it digestible. So I've got a really like small introduction to judges. It's not just on the ending. Like, it's just like, how do we read and understand this book? And it's like, like, I, I really like that kind of transition, trans, um, uh, trans, translation. It's not like literally translation, but translating the scholarly, like things I've learned mm. and, and making it accessible because ultimately my goal is I want to understand these texts better. And ultimately that's because I'm a believer and I believe this is God's word. And so if that's true, you know, I want to share this with other people as well. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And at, maybe you can speak on this too. <laughs> You're not a better person because you understand Hebrew, right. right? You're not a more moral person because you have a, like, you know, spades better understanding of judges than I do or than someone listening does. It's just, it's that's so important. Different giftings, mm-hmm. different callings. And like God gave you a bunch of gray matter in your head and you're called to use that. And you found a way to use that, mm-hmm. right? which is, I think, just something to be celebrated. I think it's super dope. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, the thing is like, we're dealing with God's word, which is a pretty important thing, right? Like to say the least. So like, I, I get it. And sometimes like I, I do, like, I do understand why people think, oh, well, you know, you're dealing with God's word, but you're like spending all this energy on like one word, like my mentor or whatever. But, um, yeah. So like personally, I, I want to make that stuff accessible, but yeah. you know, it is just like, who has God made us to be? How do we use the gifts and, like, it, yeah, we, we want to glorify God through our work, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I I want to read that. I want to get my hands on a copy of the, I'll start with the uh, the, per, the, the version for, for laymen, and I'll see if I can get through that. <laughs> but yeah, I um, I feel like when it comes to maybe understanding context in the Bible better, there's like, it's, what's really cool is, at least in this point in human history, there's so many layers to it, right? Like you can read a commentary. Commentary is extra biblical, thoughtful analysis and interpretation of stuff. It's like really accessible. Most Bibles can come half and half commentary, half Bible. Mm-hmm. And then you could go read a book like, I, I really like misreading scripture with Western eyes. Right. That's a book that I've read that I found really just helpful. And then you can get like a more complex book on a certain issue. And then you can go straight up to do a PhD and like go full nerd like you've had, which is like awesome. And so for every level of time, interest, mental ability, there's something for you to like grab onto to understand God's word more and then through that love God more, Mm -hmm. which is so cool because so much of human history have not had that option, right? Like there's decades, centuries and centuries of human history that just didn't have that opportunity and still glorified God, still loved their Bibles. I mean, when they had them. And we get this opportunity. Like I'm, all I'm saying is I'm so grateful for scholars and Bible nerds, because through all of y'all's mental work, you've put forward stuff that I can use when I'm having a rough day to like get me through it and glorify God more. And maybe I don't even appreciate that that you know beautiful text actually has a huge, rich, you know, scholarly tradition and all the webs that get tied into there, but even the fact that I can read it in my own language is just a feat of scholarly work that, I mean, you know, both Greek and Hebrew, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. I still got to get the Hebrew side of that. And I'm so inept at these languages and I'm two years into it. Like the amount of mental work that it takes to become really competent at these, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. crazy. And, and it means that I can effortlessly dive into God's word for me. Mm. Like I, I, in some ways, I guess (laughs) I didn't, I guess I think we owe more gratitude to Bible scholars than we think, even just because your night table has something accessible to you every day that you can crack open God's word. Yeah, there, there's just a ton, and I'm I'm not saying this like to pat myself. Like I no, just I'm like thinking of like no, no, like the the translation work, like it's massive, like it's it's huge, and just like I I think just thinking about you at, at your sort of juncture of your uh, journey, like. You just have, like, there's a ton of stuff out there. Like, there's just so much. And it's actually, like, a ton of, like, really good stuff. Um, I think, you know, one thing in our, our circles, sometimes you get the impression, like, if, if John Calvin didn't say it, like, like it's not worth reading. Or, like, or maybe the Puritans, you know. Um, yeah, the Puritans are worth hanging out with. And, God bless um, Yeah, like, I just think, like, like, I'm I'm sorry you feel that way. Like they're great. Like John Calvin was great. Like the Puritans have have stuff to teach us. But like, um, 
yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff out there that um, they didn't consider or, you know, or, or nuances or whatever, just kind of like opening up. Like it, it's, it's a good time to be studying. There's actually like a glut of stuff out there, probably way too much being published. Um, but uh, there's so, just so much good stuff. It's, it's a great time to be studying. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, is that your encouragement for more uh, young people to consider a path of scholarship? Um, no. No way. <laughs> so I would, yeah. I How would, would you tease that out? Yeah. So, um, well, depends what you're doing it for. Mm. Um, if you, uh, if you have a deep desire. So yes, in, in some ways, yes. Like I, I think plumbing the depths of scripture, uh, especially with, like, we haven't really talked a lot about community uh, well we did uh in the church community but the scholarly community scholarship can be like a really lonely place um except you know somehow i've got connected into uh, a christian community that really i mean is taking the christian community idea seriously in the academy um in in the university space or scholarship space and uh so um so I, I think if your idea is so, so there, there's great riches in studying in community with other people and plumbing the depths of, of scripture and working out like new ways of like, how does this apply today and figuring that stuff out. It's exhilarating. It honestly is exhilarating. If you uh, have aspirations or if you think that like the only option for you is to be a professor at the end, I would say, don't do it. Like find something else to do. Um, don't get a PhD today. Don't do research to become a professor because uh, it's really not realistic. Um, maybe things will change, but uh, there are just, yeah, there are a ton of people who have PhDs in theology, biblical studies, and don't have jobs, and the prospects just do not look good. So okay. as, as a sort of goal, if it is to be a professor— the thing is, like our our churches are like our churches aren't great at this. Um, there are some traditions that value scholarship and say, "Look, uh, we're gonna you're gonna be a pastor of like theological training." Like, man, if we if we could get serious about that and start to hire and ordain, um, and and some Presbyterian churches will have like teaching elders and um, teaching pastors, things like that. Um, so I think it's worth us considering that, like that can be really helpful for training within the church and um, just teaching. And it, well, we'd have to like reconceive how we think about some of these things. But um, mm. so yes, encourage I encourage people to study, but uh, just make sure that you're not sort of putting all your eggs in the professional kind of um, right. scholarship yeah. basket. And yeah, maybe like. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing when you start putting the conversation of like deeper biblical theological study in the vocation basket, right? Like what you're yeah. exactly what you're saying, because yeah. then it kind of then you have get into very real questions about job markets and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But then just on the other side, like more scholarly study of the Bible is good. I think you can say that pretty safely, right? Yeah, yeah. And should be, we should all do that more to the best of our abilities, I think. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, and there's a lot like. of like, I, I really do feel like the one thing about the publishing world is like they want to do stuff that sells. And what's interesting is like, like, yeah, more popular stuff sells, right? So what you have is a lot of scholars doing that kind of translation work to get stuff into a, an accessible hmm. uh, place. So yeah, I, I generally think that's true. I mean, the, it, 
yeah, so uh, just like broadening your understanding is always good. Getting into scholarship is is tricky. So make sure that you you have good people around you so that you yeah. know how to navigate those things. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You have any uh, final final musings, final thoughts, or shall we wrap this up here? I've been talking so long. <laughs> it's been great. I've really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, I have too. So um, any final thoughts? I don't think so. No? No. Do you have any final questions? No. I feel like we'd probably do another one of these, though. There's lots of... Lots yeah, of I think I think about. so, and I'd be totally up for that if you if you want to do that sometime. Rad. This has been great chatting. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at it's the Volk. Have a good one, guys. <laughs>